dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. Each episode, we'll discuss one classic book and share some recommendations for more contemporary reads that feature similar themes. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited for our second short story club here. Me too. I am so pleased that our episode on Roman fever went well and that people are excited to read short stories along with us. And it's just a really good like brain muscle exercise, I feel like, for me to keep my teacher skills sharp when I'm reading short stories because I'm able to really dig in and sort of dissect it in a way that I'm not doing with my beach reads right now. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And this one is kind of perfect for that because it's so short. It's like four pages long, takes no time at all to read, but there's a lot to it. Yeah, this is a really great one. This is one that I've definitely taught before. Have you brought this one into the classroom or read it when you were in school? So... Pretty sure I read it when I was in school. We're talking here about All Summer in a Day (laughs) by Ray Bradbury. Sometimes we get so excited. We just dive Dive right right in. in. (laughs) Um, I'm guessing I read this in school. And I I know I've assigned it before. I don't think it's one that I've spent a ton of time talking about. So I don't have great ideas for how to teach it or very clear memories of how I've taught it. But... As I was reading, I, I was thinking, oh, yeah, I've definitely discussed this with students before. Yeah, I I mean, I've taught it before, but I certainly don't have any major recommendations for teachers either. But it is really fun to teach sci-fi and to teach things that are ambiguous. This has kind of a cliffhanger, ambiguous ending, and that's always fun to talk with kids about. So All Summer in a Day by Ray Bradbury is our short story for today, and it is about a group of young school children living on Venus, and these kids have never seen the sun in their lifetime. This story is about sacrifice and the pain of nostalgia and definitely about bullying, and it's a classic sci-fi story, super short like we said, but it's packed with stunning detail and emotion. Bradbury is a great writer, and I don't know why. Maybe it's because his stories are so short, and it's just like he's one of those typical classic, like, oh, everybody reads those in middle school. But I was so struck by the writing when I reread this. Yeah, the writing is so good. The descriptions of Venus, especially when the sun does come out, are really unsettling and beautiful and yeah, I, I I was very much struck by his his skills in this reread. Just because I have a little passage underlined right in front of me, we can give this as an example. So this is just right at the beginning of the story, and it really sets up the setting and gives us a strong sense of place. It's his description of Venus. It had been raining for seven years. 
thousands upon thousands of days compounded and filled from one end to the other with rain, with the drum and gush of water, with the sweet crystal fall of showers and the concussion of storms so heavy they were tidal waves come over the islands. A thousand forests had been crushed under the rain and grown up a thousand times to be crushed again. And this was the way of life forever on the planet Venus, and this was the schoolroom of the children, of the rocket men and women who had come to a reigning world to set up civilization and live out their lives. Oh, it's so good. I love how he makes the rain sound both beautiful and terrifying and mundane all at once. Yes, and throughout this story, it's that combination and that Holding two emotions at once. Yeah. That's so human that really comes across in his descriptions and in the plot of the story itself. Yes. So as you read in that passage, this story mostly takes place in a classroom with a bunch of nine-year-old school children. Almost all of them have lived on Venus their whole lives and they are waiting for their teacher to take them outside today because today is the day when there will be a break in the rain and they will get to see the sun for the first time. They're so excited. They're so excited. (laughs) And it's it's fun to sort of feel the buzz through the story of that excitement of school children. It's definitely reminded me of a couple years ago when there was going to be the full eclipse and everyone was all excited and you know, going to step out of their classrooms for that. (laughs) Yeah, I, yes, definitely. I um, remember taking my students out for that and they had all brought those eclipse glasses and it was, yeah, it was like this moment. We were all in it together and that is definitely the buzz you feel here. Another interesting thing to note is that seven years ago the sun came out, but they were all two years old, so they don't remember it. But yes. the teacher remembers. The teacher remembers, and the students, they dream about it. Yes. And they think they remember, which is also very relatable. Like these memories of very early childhood where you wonder, do I really remember that? Or have I just been told about this so many times? That's kind of how the the children are with the the last time the sun came out. Yeah, except for one kid. Margot. Margot, and she's really sweet in this story, and Margot moved to Venus more recently with her family, and so she actually has real strong memories of Earth and of the sun because she was there more recently. Yeah, she has very strong memories, and she likes to talk about them. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But another thing that stands out about Margot is how clear it is that these years of unending rain have affected her in really terrible ways. Like that story describes her as looking washed out, like all of the color has drained from her hair and eyes and skin. And she is nervous and quiet and fragile in a way that the kids who've been raised on Venus their whole lives aren't. And it makes her different and definitely makes her a target. 
Yeah, it says she was an old photograph dusted from an album, whitened away, and if she spoke at all, her voice would be a ghost. And she just kind of stays separate from all the other kids. And without a doubt, I mean, Bradbury is taking, like, clear medical details that this is what happens when you actually have vitamin D deficiency. Yes. You can be really depressed and get, you know, washed out. And these, so these details are sad, but also kind of realistic, especially if you live somewhere where the sun doesn't shine year-round. Vitamin D deficiency is real, seasonal affective disorder, all of those things really ring true. Certainly I get all of those symptoms. I'm like double dosing on vitamin D right now to try and (laughs) recover from winter still. But I, it's kind of relatable with Margot and how, how she's acting and how she's feeling in this story. Very much so. And she is very excited to, to see the sun come out on this day. And she's sharing what she remembers about her experience with the sun on earth. And she says it's big and round like a copper penny. And she has all of these fond memories. And the other kids are really mean about her memories. And not just her memories, but the rumor that Margot's parents are going to take her back to earth at the end of this year. And that they're going to bring her back to the sunshine to to get her healthy again. Yeah, and it's it's unclear if that is true, but it does seem like Margot stands apart and has a certain level of privilege. So whether that means that her parents are just in a different position, we really don't learn about the adults or the structure of this society on Venus at all. We only get a peek into the classroom and we can kind of guess. I mean, certainly we've heard stories about like oh well people are going to be moving to mars and we're going to go colonize another planet when the earth dies and things like that and different stories about space exploration so it's not a huge leap to think and imagine what this colony on venus might look like but we only get to see things from the kids perspective in this story which is super fascinating yeah that is really interesting and i think that's part of what makes this a great choice to bring into the classroom because it's great for kids to see kids in literature and get to discuss that. But it also, even as an adult reader, just adds a really interesting layer to the story because since it's told kind of in the almost collective limited perspective of nine-year-olds, we don't really know what's true and what's not. We just know what's true and real to them and that's what they base their decisions on. And they make some pretty crappy decisions. (laughs) So just to sort of move along in the story, the sun comes out and the descriptions of that are absolutely beautiful. Bradbury says, it was as if in the midst of a film concerning an avalanche, a tornado, a hurricane, a volcanic eruption, something had first gone wrong with the sound apparatus, thus muffling and finally cutting off all the noise, all of the blasts and repercussions and thunders, and then, second, ripped the film from the projector and inserted in its place a beautiful tropical slide which did not move or tremor. So everything goes quiet because they're used to the sound of the rain falling, and then suddenly the sun comes out and there is this lush, beautiful tropical jungle and the kids are able to feel the warmth on their skin and 
it's just, I mean, full of beautiful descriptions. But the whole entire time that those kids are out enjoying the sun, the reader, like I couldn't even enjoy vicariously through them because they locked Margot in a closet and she doesn't get to experience it. So the whole time, my head and my heart is with Margot in that dark closet being so sad. Absolutely. Yeah, you're like rushing through these beautiful descriptions as a reader because you want to know what happens to Margot. And it's it's devastating that she spends the whole they're out there for two hours that's how long the sun is out and they very maliciously lock her in the closet that's intentional and then as soon as they're outside they forget about her and they kind of regret it at the end they think about what they've done and they feel awful that Margot didn't get to experience this but it's too late. Yeah, there is a sense of guilt for sure. And I also think, I mean, part of the reason that they locked her in the closet is they were really sick of her sort of being above them or having this sort of power that they didn't have. And now they've seen the sun and they will be able to remember it as strongly as she does. And so they're on that equal playing field and then they feel bad. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think they also feel bad. I mean, so they couldn't remember the sun, but now they have the experience of seeing it and going back to rain and sadness and knowing that it's going to be hard now to not see the sun for another seven years or whatever it is. Yeah, I think that the story really wants the reader to ask the question of, is it better to have seen the sun and then go back to seven years of rain or is it better to live in that? sort of ignorance I don't know if I have an answer I don't either I think (laughs) I think it's tough and I guess I will say that it's that cliche of you have to experience the lows in order to really feel the highs and that that contrast of emotion that joy and pain live in contrast with each other for a reason and you sort of need both for a fulfilled life but they're living a really different, strange kind of life. So it's hard to take that direct application. Yeah. Yeah. And the balance of seven years to two hours is so disproportionate and sad. I also, this is much less philosophical, but I get so mad at the teacher in this case. Like these are nine-year-olds. You have to count them before you take them outside in the sunshine. What is she thinking? And she just, she comes in and she just goes, is everyone here? And the kids are like, yeah. And they run out. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And certainly would she not have counted them when they were coming in, especially to make sure that they were all there? Because the kids are the ones who go let Margot out of the closet. The teacher presumably doesn't even realize that she's gone even when they all come back. Yes, this teacher should not be leading field trips. No, the teacher is terrible. (laughs) So the kids do, the kids are the ones who, they feel guilty. They come back and they go to let Margot out of the closet. And that is where the story ends. Yeah, it literally ends with they let Margot out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So they, the last couple lines are, They walked over to the closet door slowly and stood by it. Behind the closet door was only silence. They unlocked the door 
even more slowly and let Margot out. Like you said at the beginning, definitely an ambiguous ending, definitely an unsettling ending. It's an interesting, it's an interesting choice and powerful. It's always fun, of course, to ask kids to finish the story. So some of the responses that I've gotten over the years are, Margot's dead. They went to the closet and she died. (laughs) So they're letting her body out. Or Margot gets out and she like goes on an angry rampage and she beats all those kids up. Um, (laughs) Or, I, I mean, I think that the most obvious ending is that Margot comes out and she's just as sad and despondent as before and that the kids likely try to befriend her after this because they feel bad and because now she's more like one of them but I just can't imagine her getting over it and befriending anyone I just see her as being lonely and it's so sad it's so sad yeah I I don't even see I I like your student suggestion that she has this righteous anger when she comes <laughs> I out. But I everything else in the story just seems to suggest she lacks the energy for that. And that's so sad. I know I wouldn't have the energy to beat people up after a long winter. I don't have the energy for much <laughs> of anything. So <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Poor Margot. Poor Margot. Well, what do you think... I mean, why do you think this is such a staple in classrooms? And what are some of the big ideas that this little story packs in it? I I personally think the biggest reason that this is taught in classrooms, and particularly middle school, is that it's such an obvious, don't bully one another narrative. And it's such a an easy way to discuss bullying and to discuss kindness and respect and how we should treat each other and all of that. And I can totally see why it gets taught. Yeah, absolutely. And I like that it is such a clear message of kindness and not bullying and accepting people who are different or who have different life experiences but it's not overly moralistic. Like, you still have to make that connection. It's easy to make, but mm-hmm. he doesn't write out and, like, and that's why, children, we don't lock each other in the closet kind of ending. Yeah, but if I were to teach this with older students or even in my college classroom, I think that there are lots of conversations to be had about the sacrifices sometimes that are required to lead a sustainable life. I mean, I kept thinking about climate change and the fact that our weather systems are often changing and this not seeing the sun for days on end is actually not that far off from what a lot of us experience or might experience in the coming years and what kind of sacrifices Obviously, these people made a sacrifice to move to Venus and live there for some reason. And so it just made me think, what are the sacrifices that I'm willing to make in order to keep living a sustainable life on Earth? Yeah, that's a really great point. And I I think that those conversations can come very naturally from this story. I love a story where there's excellent world building, but there's a lot to fill in, of course, because there are only four pages here so it makes you wonder what happened on earth to lead 
to this, why these particular people are there. And, and as you said, like what sorts of sacrifices can and should we be making in our day-to-day lives with this kind of situation always on the back burner or, or you know, in our minds to a certain extent? Yeah, definitely. And then I also just think that stories set in space are really fun. Yeah, they're totally fun. I really love teaching and reading books that are and stories that are so strange and surreal, whether it's because they're sci-fi fantasy or just because the author has that kind of surreal tone. I think that putting characters in outlandish situations is often a good way to reveal something or communicate something very basic and relatable about human nature. And that is very much what we see. There's this really interesting thing that Bradbury does. So I I love his writing style. He will have these long passages of description and then have a really simple sentence that just sort of like resonates and lingers. So for example, he gives this really long description of Margot and her behavior and then says, but Margot remembered. Yeah. And it's like that really short sentence just like rings. And then there's another one, super long description of the weather change. And then he just says, the sun came out. And it's just a pattern that I noticed that I really loved. And I I think that the writing of this is so fabulous. And that's something that, I mean, I hate to admit, but that I never really talked about when I taught this in my classroom. We didn't sit and marvel and gush over the writing, but we certainly maybe should have. Yeah, I haven't either. And I think this would be a really good kind of model text if you were having students try to write short stories. Have you recently read any of his novels or how familiar are you with his other work not at all I haven't even read Fahrenheit 451 I read Dear Fahrenheit 451 which is that book by the librarian which is adorable (laughs) but I haven't read anything besides his short stories yeah I know I've read Fahrenheit 451 I don't remember if it was for a class or just at some point but Nothing about it sticks with me, although I was thinking that maybe I would try and reread it and then watch the HBO movie with Michael B. Jordan. I heard the movie wasn't very good. I've heard that unfortunately. too. But I really love Michael B. Jordan, so I'm willing to give it a chance. I, he He's worth watching. But <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, yeah, the movie not being very good... <laughs> Is the movie worth watching when Michael B. Jordan's in question? Different. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Different story, but. Yeah, I mean, I I think that it's hard to bring this kind of writing and style to life on the screen. I mean, like I said, I haven't read Fahrenheit 451 in many years, but if it follows that pattern that you were noticing of this kind of lush writing, but then also these very kind of blunt and to the point statements that doesn't necessarily that feeling that tone doesn't necessarily transfer very easily to the screen the I mean I'm just I'm really impressed also 
like we've said, this is so short, four pages. If you're listening to this and you still haven't read it, pause it and it'll take you like 10, 15 minutes to read it. Um, But I am always so impressed with authors that can pack so much into very little, whether that's just a couple of pages or just a sentence. And I think it's something that he does really well. Yeah, I, I agree. Don't you love, okay, we didn't even talk about Margot's poem where the kids are writing poems about the sun. Yeah. And she says, I think the sun is a flower that blooms for just one hour. And it's such a beautiful poem. And then one of the boys is like, you didn't write that. (laughs) (laughs) And how real is that scene where she like reads this heartfelt, beautiful poem. It's so good. And then one of the other kids pipes up and is like, that's stupid. Oh my gosh, it's so real. (laughs) It's like the highest compliment for someone to be like, you didn't write that. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Anyway, yes. I just thought it was so cute. We had to read Margot's poem. Yeah, I I love Margot, and I I think that it is really important that you bring up that she certainly has some privilege. At, at least we think so. I mean, there's a there's a line in here about how her parents will lose a lot of money by moving back to Earth, but she either has the privilege of that not mattering financially to them. Or her parents caring much more about her well-being than their own financial reality. And so either way, you see that kind of, it sets sets her apart and you can see why other kids would be jealous of that. So I, I think that that's really interesting. I mean, obviously we feel... And we should feel so heartbroken for Margot, and she does not in any way deserve what happens to her. But I I like that there's a complexity there where we can also empathize with the other kids, at least for their jealousy, if not for the way they choose to channel that. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, the kids are the clear villains of the story, but their actions I think are pretty understandable, especially when you know kids who do not have developed prefrontal cortexes. They cannot make great decisions for themselves. Empathy can sometimes be a struggle. It makes sense, even as cruel as it is. Yeah, that's why I think the teacher is the real villain. So true. (laughs) She's just absolutely terrible. Just count the children. (laughs) I know, just count them. And you would also think particularly that Margot's off by herself all the time, that she would stick out like a sore thumb. And if you're a good teacher, you always know that one kid that's off by themselves. Yep. That's very true. Maybe Bradbury was just never a teacher or he had some bad teachers. Also, why was she just not in the room for like 10 minutes? Didn't it say that Where she was went she? The, uh... Yeah, it says, where's teacher? She'll be back. She better hurry. We'll miss it. And they're all just standing in the classroom. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I have left a class full of students to go to the bathroom because... Oh, me too. You have to. Yeah. But still. But not nine-year-olds. Not nine-year-olds. Not nine-year-olds. In some classes, I would like... Oh, yeah. I would not. There are (laughs) those classes. My ninth graders, but... (laughs) Well, who would you recommend like what kind of readers do you think would enjoy this short story or Bradbury in general all of this with the caveat of this story's four pages so it's not a big time commitment even if this doesn't sound like something that's up your alley 
it's a really easy way to dip your toe into some sci-fi. Yeah, I think anyone who enjoys YA dystopia stories. Totally. So fans of the Hunger Games. I think especially the Hunger Games. That's where all the kids are cruel to each other and try to kill each other, right? <laughs> yes. Actually, my husband and I tried to rewatch the Hunger Games recently, and I think now we're just too old for it. We're like, we can't watch these children kill each other. But yes, I agree. If you love the Hunger Games, this one definitely right up your alley. Things like you're going to talk about another one of Andy Weir's, but his book Artemis, where they live on the moon. It's, of course, much more detailed about how that works and who lives on the moon and what the social structures and economic structures of that are and how classism is very much a reality in this lunar society that I think probably gets a lot from from All Summer in a Day. So if you enjoy books like that, I think you'd like this story. I think that there will definitely link to one of Bradbury's short story collections. I think it's it's got October in the title, and I can't remember anything besides that. But there are, most of his stories are widely available online, so they're super easy to find. And they're just fun reads, but also if you have kids at home and you're trying to get them to sort of read more over summer or keep up summer school, like I know I was always doing spelling worksheets and stuff in the summertime before I could go play. <laughs> but... <laughs> Reading a short story like this with a fifth or sixth grader is a really fun summer activity, and I think this one would be good to do. So, um, And then if they seem to like it, it's a good gateway to a lot of sci-fi space exploration stories that seem to be popular in middle grade and young adult. And you don't have to have comprehension questions. You don't have to have major stuff for it to be valuable. You can just read it and ask kids what they think, and you are learning. So I hope that empowers some some people out there. (laughs) Definitely. Well, let's – we've talked about how we see roots of this story in so many different books, but we each chose three pairings, same as we do with our typical full-length novel episodes – So, Chelsea, what is your first pairing for All Summer in a Day? I mentioned The Martian by Andy Weir in our Odyssey episode, but I think that it also works well here because it's a story certainly of a lot of sacrifice and someone living under strange, tough circumstances. There's definitely a lot of sci-fi element. Um, I love that you brought up Artemis because I do think that's another really good pairing by him. I haven't read that one, but my husband really loved it. So I guess any of Andy Weir's space books would work really well with this one. Yeah, definitely. I, I've read Artemis, but not The Martian. And Rosario Dawson does the audiobook and she's great. I, I struggled with it because it to me it felt a little bit like a female character who he'd maybe just written as a male character first and then was like, hmm. eh, maybe I'll make her a woman. She didn't, I, I, I mean, you know, women come in all varieties, <laughs> but to me yeah. this felt like a little bit of a stretch, but I loved the world building and the setting and his sense of humor is great. Yeah, so uh, The Martian is hilarious. I'm glad to know that Artemis is funny as well and I don't think that there's much humor in all summer in a day, but certainly it's fun to read something that makes you laugh in the summertime. Absolutely. What have you paired with this one? 
So my first pairing is Friday Black by Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. And this is a collection of short stories. He won the, or was on the 35 under 35 or 30, I I don't know, that New Yorker um, Mm -hmm. award for his short stories. And this collection is really excellent. I think the, the first story in it actually is my favorite, but they're all great. They, there's 12 sh- short stories. They vary quite a bit in genre, but there is quite a bit of sci-fi and fantasy in all of these stories, and all of them have some sort of weirdness or surrealness to them, and they all address violence, racism, and cultural unrest. So I like this pairing both because of the sci-fi surrealist connections, but also because they're very much stories that have that outlandish sci-fi premise, but touch on something very real and human, and, and they're critiquing contemporary society through their sci-fi lens. So that's Friday Black, and it's an excellent collection. That's a great pairing, and I I think I have that one on my shelf. We've talked about before how we have short story collections. Yeah, We admire them. We pick <laughs> them up and read them now and then, but I'm not great about reading the, um, reading the short stories in a collection. So. Yeah, and, and I think I've read seven or eight of the 12 here. So I haven't read every single one, but I look forward to to reading the rest and and definitely think the ones that I have read pair well. I love that. Well, I think that this is probably a good pairing with Friday Black as well as All Summer in a Day, but I would recommend The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemisin. And this is the first book in her Broken Earth trilogy. And talk about intricate world building N.K. Jemisin is the best at that. Like, she is infamous for her world building. And the setting for the Broken Earth trilogy is a barren land with no sun, no clean water. It's somewhat reminiscent of Venus in the sense that the characters are certainly being deprived of necessities and things that the Earth is supposed to provide. And... The Earth in this story goes through major weather events that are completely apocalyptic on a regular basis. So just imagine the constant trauma of the Earth turning over again and again. And it's sort of its own character because it influences the story so much and acts on its own. So I have not actually read this one. This is another one my husband read and loved. He's a big fan of N.K. Jemisin now and really enjoyed that book. There's a whole entire glossary at the back of the book, which I've heard is really helpful. I know that while he was reading, Curtis flipped back and forth and like checked stuff, and it's one that you kind of have to go slowly through. But everyone that I've heard reviews from said that it's totally worth spending the time on and has really liked it. What is your next pairing for All Summer in a Day? My next pairing is Dry by... Neil and Jared Schusterman. And Neil Schusterman, I actually don't know. Is Jared his son? Brother? I don't know. Neil Schusterman is... I'm not sure. Like a prolific 
YA dystopian writer. And this particular story, it starts in a in California that looks quite similar to present-day California, where there are lots of restrictions on when you can water your lawn and how much water use different buildings and businesses can have and all of that. And then very early in the story, the water runs out. And so I think this has a very similar setup to All Summer in a Day, where he takes something that people take for granted. In this case, it's water in All Summer in a Day. Of course, it's the sun. And he asks, okay, what would what would it look like if this was gone forever? His writing is really smart and poignant. And his characters, his YA characters, are really complex. I, I feel like I've been avoiding the YA, or in general, anything dystopian for the last few years. <laughs> yeah. Because it just feels a little too much like... Like I'm, li- we're living in it a bit, and I don't necessarily want to escape into that the way I did when I was a teenager. Especially get, right now, yeah, yeah. Like, but I totally get the appeal of it. I just know I've really been avoiding it. This yeah. short story is the closest I've come in a while. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people are there, so don't pick up dry if that's you. I've, I mean, I've heard it's page turning, so that's the other thing. Is sometimes. It doesn't matter if it's like close to your reality or kind of scary. If it's page turning and it's going to get you to keep flipping the pages, then sometimes that's all you need. That's true. All right. What is your third pairing? Okay. So uh, last one, I was trying to think of something where the weather really heavily influences the characters and their moods and their actions. And I came up with The Dry by Jane Harper. And this is a mystery and it's more of a detective procedural, I would say, but the setting actually is the opposite of all summer in a day. There is too much sun. It's a really hot drought in the Australian desert, and so the main investigator is coming to investigate a murder, and it just, the heat really pulses through the novel, affects the characters, and it, the atmosphere is really, really important. So I I just also really think that that's a great summer beach read or just summer read in general. And I love a good procedural for mysteries. So that's The Dry by Jane Harper. I really want to read that. I've had it on my shelves for so long. Maybe Maybe this summer I will finally get there. Yeah, and I know you've liked a ton of French in the past for mysteries, and I've seen lots of comparisons between Jane Harper and Tana French, at least in terms of building atmosphere. Harper's really great about that. Yeah, I I like that in a mystery. Okay, final pairing here. What do you have for us, Sarah? Okay, my final pairing is maybe a little bit out there, but it's Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson. And have you read this one? No, but I have had several friends read it and love it and it like it was kind of on my radar but I wasn't sure if it was for me but now I really want to pick it up because I've had a few trusted readers say it's great yeah I really liked it and I really loved it on audio I think that the narrator really added a lot to my understanding of the main characters so if you do pick it up I would recommend listening to it so this is a book 
about a young woman whose name is escaping me right now, but she is called by her kind of former high school best friend, but also that relationship has a lot of baggage to it, and the best friend needs her to come and be a nanny for her two stepchildren. And the stepchildren are great, fun, normal kids, with the exception of the fact that when they're upset, they burst into flame. And they're not harmed when they burst into flame. They just need someone to calm them down. And then they're they're okay. But of course, this is not normal for children. And it's very embarrassing and perhaps even threatening because the children's father is a politician and he has big ambitions. So I loved the story. Even if you don't really like magical realism, I think this one might work for you if you like kind of big hearted family stories or stories about unusual or off the beaten path lives and characters. It's of course full of those kinds of characters and to see their relationships develop is really fun. I think this is a great pairing for all summer in a day, both because of what I mentioned earlier with that kind of weirdness, but it getting at something very human, but also because these kids just need what all kids need, which is love and attention and care and to feel valued and safe. And that reminds me a lot of Margot, who just and the other kids in the story who just need that and they act out when they don't have it. So that is Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson. I love that pairing. And that's another thing with All Summer in a Day or just books with kids in general aren't always my favorite, partly because I don't think that often, unless it's perhaps a middle grade novel, kids aren't represented super well in literature. They're either like too annoying or they're too perfect. And so it's nice to see a representation of kids that really feel like kids. Yeah, this one, this one has that for me. I I think, I think you'd like it. And it, it's surprisingly sweet and cheerful. I mean, there's hard stuff in it for sure, but it's a more uplifting read than I was expecting. I'm convinced. I think I would like it too. I'll I'll pick it up sometime. All right. Well, we would love to know what you thought of All Summer in a Day by Ray Bradbury. We always enjoy hearing some discussion and conversation about these short stories. And if you are interested in even more classic literature enthusiasm plus news about the podcast, you can go ahead and follow us on Instagram at Novel Pairings Pod. We are also over on Twitter at Novel Pairings. And like I said, let us know if you read this or if you end up picking up the books that we recommended today. Just tag us in a post or send us a message. And be sure to tell your friends about the Novel Pairings Podcast. Just send them a text message or post that you're listening on social media. And an extra special thing to do is write a review on Apple Podcasts. Those really help other listeners find our show. Yeah, we've had a few new reviews come in in the last couple of weeks. So thanks to everyone who has taken the time to write a review. It really means so much to us. 
We declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How soon one tires of anything and of a book. We'll be back soon with an episode on Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston.